Uh, the first one is in verses 4 to 5. Oh, there we go, I'm working. And that's the construction of the temple. So Peter starts by saying in verse 4, as you come to him, and it's a verb which really means drawing near. So he's talking about so drawing near to God. And you know, think of Hebrews where it tells us to draw, draw near to the throne of grace. That's what that's the word that, that Peter is talking about. And that was so important because Israel, they could only draw near to the altar, couldn't they? That's as far as they could go in their worship in the, in the temple. Or think about the, the high priest. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. That's the, that, that, you know, that's the only way they could draw near to God and offer the sacrifices. But this new life in Christ that Peter is going to talk about means that all God's people have this wonderful privilege of being able to draw near to God. Isn't that wonderful? It's that picture when the Lord Jesus dies on the cross and the temple curtain gets drawn, gets torn in two. That access, is, that, well, the, the, the access that was denied has been removed and now we can draw near to God in Christ Jesus. And there's also a close link. Verse 4 and 5 are really together, probably one verse. But verses 4 and 5 are closely linked which tells us that we're being built into something. So we could read and should probably read verses 4 and 5. And coming to him, dot, 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 you, dot, 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 are being built into. It again, it speaks of this ongoing relationship that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. This ongoing relationship that a Christian not should have with God, but must have with God. It's this daily occurrence of drawing near to God, isn't it? That we're called to have. As God, we're told, builds us up. As we grow. And as we saw last week, this emphasis on the Word. So as we grow in the Word, as we, as we rely and depend on God's Word, we are built more and more into His spiritual house. This spiritual house. And not only that, therefore, this individual drawing near to God, and this individual drawing near to God in his word, should increase our corporate integration together as this family of believers into the church. So as we come near to God, as we draw near to God, he is building us. We are being built into this spiritual house. Now, when the temple was built... Like any other building then, stone was the main usage. It wasn't brick or anything like that, although there were some types of bricks, but stone was used. And, and stones were just that, weren't they? Stones. That's all they were. But Peter says something quite daring and quite radical. He says, as we draw near to God, being built up in him, we're, we're doing so to the living stone. He's telling his readers that Jesus is the living stone. It shows us his superiority uh, to the Old Testament temple made of dead stones, of just stones. But it's also reminding us that as Christians, that there is no going back. That was really important for Peter to tell this church, there's no going back. Remember, this is under the banner of suffering and trials and temptation. Maybe the letter to the Hebrews, they could have been reminded of this. 
You're being built into this house, which, which the, 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 cent, the cornerstone, as we'll come to, the main part is as you come to him, the living stone. Peter saying, you can't go back to dead stones. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go back to a temple, a building, to try and worship God? Why would you want to go back to the, your old sacrificial system where you couldn't draw near to God? Where you had to rely on the high priest to sort you out. Where you were, you were banned from the holy of holies, the presence of God. Why would you want to do that when you are coming to living, a living stone? You're not coming, drawing near to God by dead stones. You are drawing near to God through Christ, the living stone. This way is mild better. For it is this living, real, personal relationship that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And see the contrast between the way the world views this living stone and with the way God does. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. The world rejected Jesus and continues to reject Jesus. But in God's eyes, Jesus is chosen by him. And he is precious to him. There is a reminder as well here that when we come to Jesus, not only do we enter into a living relationship with God, but we will be opposed for men. That's the theme of the letter, isn't it? Suffering. And he's saying, look, you're coming to Jesus, who is also rejected by humans. Think of that in, in the bigger picture. Yes, you're being rejected by outsiders, but you're coming to the living stone, the centre of Christianity, the main primary aspect of Christianity, Jesus. He was rejected by humans too, but, but he was chosen by God and precious to him. The term chosen echoes chapter 1, verse 1, where he says to God's elect scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's the same way that Peter applied it to Christians. It was all part of God's plan, Jesus. He didn't come along as a result of an accident or, or God not knowing what to do next or going to plan B. It would always be Jesus who would reveal the glory of God and bring us to him to glorify God. And the word precious means highly valued or esteemed. That's how God evaluates Jesus. Therefore, shouldn't that be the way we evaluate Jesus? Precious. You know, do, we, do we think about those terms in, in our Christian life, I wonder? Isn't Jesus being precious to us? Something of high value, something really worthy of being esteemed. Do, do we think about Jesus like that? Is he precious to us? Because he should be, shouldn't he? He should be so precious to us. Whether it's in the good times, thinking the bigger picture of this letter, the good times and the bad times. The times when we don't feel like being Christians, when our world might be falling apart. Is Jesus precious to us? 
Is he the one we rely on? Is he the one we go to? Is he the one we still rejoice in? So it was quite daring at the time to refer to Jesus as this living stone. But now in verse 5, Peter refers to believers too as living stones. And he wants to capture the imagery quite clearly that what God is doing is viewing us as chosen and precious too. Because as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also... Someone's saying the same for you, likewise, and you like living stones. There is something special about you too, that's what he's saying. He's already said you're a chosen people, but, but you're as precious to me as well, that's what God's saying. That's what Peter's saying, we are precious to God too. We also, like the living stone, are living stones. And we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's quite a wonderful picture, isn't it? We're part of Jesus, the living stones. But but like that, we are living stones too. We are being built into this spiritual house, the church. And that means buildings, therefore, are, are defunct as a way of referring to the church. It is and will always be the people. And that is so important to us. It's almost by saying the living stone, living stones, the true church, the church, is not a building. It's a people. And the word house is taken from God's house, which in the Old Testament would refer to the temple. So actually what it's saying, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual temple. Therefore God dwells in us, his spiritual temple. Because he doesn't need to dwell in a building, does he not? Through the Lord Jesus, he dwells in us. The spiritual temple. This is so encouraging to a church suffering, isn't it? But it's equally as encouraging to us today. As, as, as Christians, whatever we're going through, this is the, we've got to be thinking, this is how God is viewing us. We are living stones. We are his temple. We are his spiritual temple. The danger is just to think of ourselves as a sort of brick. Because he's talking about living stones being built up. You know, they're thinking, well, well, I wonder what part of this brick I am part. Of. Maybe I'm like a brick over there that's been plastered over to make it look better. No, he's teaching us something really important. He's encouraging us to think of themselves as a building without a defined size or shape. So the beauty of this spiritual temple is, is not size or grandeur or or how many amazing stained glass windows there are, or a nice cross and things like that, or the gold that was in the temple, and the the grandeur of it all. No, that's not how we're to think about it. We're to see ourselves with the imperishable beauty of holiness, of faith in the Christian life. That's the grandeur of this temple. Not altars, not buildings, not gold or silver, but holiness and faith. 
Because that's how we reflect the beauty and glory of the Lord. As we seek to be the image of God to one another and to the world. But it gets better because Peter then goes on to say, look, we've been built into a holy priesthood. We are all priests. We are all priests in the sense that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Remember, it was only the priests who would offer the the sacrifices of the animals and things like that in the Old Testament. But we now are priests too. Because Jesus, our high priest, has done away with that and given us this wonderful position, this position of honour. We're being built into a spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. We offer ourselves. It's a wonderful picture, offering our our bodies, our lives to God. We we remind ourselves, don't we, of Romans 12.1, but Philippians 4.8, Hebrews 13.15 and verse 16 all speak of ways of, we, as, of ways of how we offer ourselves spiritually to God. And they're all continual aromas that please God as we live for Him. As we delight God with our offering of ourselves. But it is through Jesus Christ. The question is, does it speak of us like that? Is that what we are growing and being built into in our, in our own lives and as a church family? As we're being built into this spiritual temple, are we acting like holy priests? Are we offering ourselves to God in His service? Are we giving financially? Are we giving ourselves, our bodies, our times, all these things? Because that's what the New Testament teaches. Does, does that characterise who we are? We thought about the characteristics of holiness. What are the characteristics of being the church? Well, it's offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And that's the worry, isn't it? Making sure that what we do for God, what we offer to God, is actually acceptable to Him. Acceptable to Him. And pleasing to him. Let's move on because the reason that we should think about ourselves, because it is a strange concept today in the 21st century of being this temple, but the reasons we should think of ourselves in this way is because, secondly, we see the foundation of this temple according to Scripture, verses 6 to 8. Peter gives three quotes, and I have never read as much stuff on two verses in commentaries and Christian writing on these three verses. There is unbelievable amounts written. Even I got a tad bored. And I had to think, how can I get all this into a few sentences? Or maybe a few more. But he gives these three quotes. And these are vital quotes, which the, the church would have been aware of, of their heritage but three prophecies about the Lord Jesus that were to come. And it's teaching that that Christians are the spiritual temple of God's people and that only this temple is where God dwells with his people. Everything else, including the Old Testament way, therefore is gone. It's no more. This is how it is now. 
And the first one in verse 6, for in Scripture it says, is from Isaiah 28, 16. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Well, the context of this verse, it's placed a century and a half uh, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's also uh, very significant because Israel rejected the preaching of Jeremiah when he said the temple would fall, they'd be exiled because of their rebellion to God. And God's people said, no, we won't. We've got the temple. We have God. And then they rejected Ezekiel's preaching when they were in exile. Uh, And it said that God was going to judgment. God was going to judge them. They were facing God's judgment for their rebellion and sinfulness. And what did they say? No, we have God. We're okay. But Isaiah promises that he will reject the rebellious leaders in Jerusalem and establish a sure foundation, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Now the cornerstone is the first stone laid as the corner of the of, of, on the on the foundation, and it had to be positioned exactly right. I was making something uh, when we got down to Devon uh, to see our friends. Because he sort of rebuilt his house, there's always jobs that he still haven't done. And this is sort of like five years ago now. So we always do a building project, me and Paul. And it's great because I learn all these tricks of the trade and things like that. And we're building this sort of trellis fence to go on because they're, they're, they're fostering. You go out their house and he's built this thing and there's a big drop on the steps. So it's quite dangerous. So we had to build this trellis type. Thing. As we're building this square, this big square, I said, right, do we just get a couple of nails, knock them in at each side like that? And we're done. He said, well, no, because they might not be straight. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we need to go to the corner and do Pythagoras' theorem. And he says, you know that, don't you, Cookie? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Three, five, and three, four, five. Well, we doubled it to six. Eight and ten. There you go, I do remind it. And we had to do it. Oh, and it took forever because I kept nudging it. And, and he kept making me do it, and I kept nudging it even more, and he kept getting frustrated with me. But he said, we need to get this corner perfect so that the lines are absolutely straight and the rest of it will be bob on. And it's the same with, with buildings. They get that cornerstone, and it has to be absolutely positioned perfectly for the walls to be exactly right, or at some point it will be skew-whiff. And it won't be right. Well, there you go. Dodgy, dodgy building. So, this is really important. It was a prediction of a new work by God that there was going to be something new built which would stand in opposition to the leaders and the mention of Zion here, which was referred to the temple in Jerusalem, on on, on the hill in Jerusalem, shows that this work is going to be in a new place, therefore replacing the temple there. It was a very, very bold, strong prophecy by Isaiah. But what it means though, like Israel found, because Jesus is this chosen precious cornerstone, and it is a spiritual temple, The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Israel were constantly embarrassed and put to shame 
because of the way they lived their life, because they had lack of faith in God. They were rebellious. They turned away from God. But in this temple, in this stone that was being laid, in the Lord Jesus, this precious cornerstone, who would build this perfect temple, we will never be put to shame, because this temple will never be destroyed. Because it is the temple of God's people. There will be no disappointment, no embarrassment, no shame. It's a a reference as well to to our faith being in vain. For those who trust in this sure cornerstone, Jesus himself, it will never, ever fall. The second quotation is from Psalm 118. 22. You see, to those who believe Jesus is as precious to us as he is to God, but but for those who do not believe, verse 7, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I think in the old NIV, the word there was capstone. And there's a reason for that. The capstones, that's up there somewhere, isn't it? But actually, they've brought it back in the NIV now, because it's, it, they've missed the point by translating it capstone. It, it, we can take it and should take it. Of all the stuff I've read, that it is the cornerstone. I'll explain why in a minute. You see, Jesus has become the cornerstone, this sort of end point or head, the, the, the most important stone. So believers in Jesus will not be put to shame because of their faith, because God has proved his rejectors wrong by his exaltation. And well, that's why they thought the capstone, because it's going to be visible and up there. But actually, because Jesus is the cornerstone, because he's the vital piece in this temple, because it's through the cornerstone that we come to God and we're built into this spiritual temple, God has proved his rejectors wrong because of the way he has exalted Jesus to the position and place of greatest prominence, the head of the corner, the pivotal, the end point which is so important. He has become that person, that way, that truth and that life. And verse 8, going back to Isaiah chapter 8, 14, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Jesus, we are told in Isaiah, will be a sanctuary for those who follow him but he will be a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling to the disobedience, to those who reject him. Oh, we talked about it, didn't we? In in Ezra, when we're thinking about opposition to God's work. If the world hated you, it hated me first. There there was always going to be rejection of Jesus. There was always going to be hostility towards Jesus. And therefore, we should all expect it, shouldn't we, as believers? Because that is what Jesus will always be, a stumbling block. Paul said that, didn't he, to the Jews? A stumbling block to the Jews. And Peter tells us why they stumble in verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for or to do. You see, rejection of the gospel, hostile belief, which surrounded these Christians, it was predicted by God through Isaiah years before. But it was also planned by God. Therefore, what is going on 
is all within the scope of God's sovereign plan. And the nearest thing we can uh, look at, a parallel in the New Testament, is that in Acts, isn't it? Acts chapter 4. Well, Peter, remember, in 1 Peter, he's encouraging these Christians who are struggling. But he says, actually, the stone the builders rejected, and Jesus is a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble. Why? Because they disobey the gospel. They disobey it. But then he also says in the other sentence, well, this is what they were destined for or to do. But if you turn to Acts 4, we... we, we Get a picture of what is going on here. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So in one sense, uh, Luke's saying, well, look, they all met together, they planned this, but actually in their prayer they're saying, well, you, you ordained this to happen, God. This was part of your plan all along. So who's responsible? Is God responsible or are the people responsible? Well, that's something for you to think about again. But there is a, a, what we call a doctrine of compatibility within God's sovereignty. And it teaches both human responsibility and God's ordained will. So we are humanly responsible for our actions and our deeds. But actually God is also sovereign and plans all things. That's the way it goes. It's complicated, but it's worth looking it into. But it's there within God's sovereignty. It's like Philippians, work out your fear with uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in the next sentence, Paul says. For God is doing the work behind the scenes for you. you know, hang on a minute, I'm supposed to work it out. How's God doing the scene? Well, it's this compatibility of, of, of human responsibility and God's sovereign plan and will. But the whole point of it is meant to comfort God's people. Yes, it confuses us as well. But it's meant to comfort God's people who will suffer for the gospel because God holds it all in control. And even in the midst of suffering or persecution or pressure to conform to the world, God, through faith in Christ, is building a spiritual temple, the church. No matter what goes on around us, when it all seems like it's too hard to go on, when it seems like the rejection of the gospel is wearing us down, God says, well, of course that was going to happen. Of course it was going to happen. I told you about it in Isaiah. But I have already told you that you are living stones being built with the living stone into my spiritual temple that can never be destroyed and that can never be broken or prevented. And then we get to the most important part. What's the point of all this? Where's Peter heading with this extended metaphor? Well, he wants us in verses 9 to 10 to see the significance of the temple. 
But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think this is where he he draws it all to a conclusion to remind his readers uh, why this is so significant and uh, to remind them of the great blessings which belong to them and which belong to us as Christians today. It is so, it is so significant for God's people, to, to you and to me today, when we, we think firstly <clears throat> of how God views us. Have you ever thought, how does God view me? Little old me in my little old life which seems insignificant to so many people. Let me tell you how God views you. He says, first of all, you are a chosen people, a chosen race. The language is, this is inescapable. This is who you are. This is your identity now. God has chosen this new race of people. Christians who have obtained membership in this new chosen race, not, as, not by physical descent or, or from Abraham, but, but through faith in the Lord Jesus, coming to Jesus and putting our faith and belief and trust in Him. I remember listening to uh, Tabiti, Tabiti, I can never remember his last name, but he, he was preaching uh, in America when, when I was listening over there at, the com- at this conference I was at. And he, he was saying, you know, we talk about the church being multicultural. Uh, and, it, and he sort of said, well, it's not. It's multiracial, but we're one culture. God's culture. Well, in a sense now, we can flip it the other way and say, well, we're not multiracial. We are one race. Whether, whether we're black or white or whatever. We are one race of people. We are God's chosen people. We are one identity, one one people. Yes, we might have our different backgrounds. But we are a new race of people that God has chosen for something absolutely amazing. But there's more. We're a chosen people, but we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We also to speak a new spiritual nation based on allegiance to, to King Jesus. A holy nation, <coughs> to, to, holy means being set apart. We have been set apart by God to be this new race, his new people. And it's not based on geographical boundaries or ethnic identity. It's based on the fact that God has chosen us. And equally significant, and I do like this, we are God's special possession. We are to Him as precious as Jesus is to Him. We are a special possession. And it's been that special possession in Christ Jesus, that we've found our forgiveness, our, our redemption. And it's so that we may declare the praises of Him. That is a job for us as Christians and as a church. 
that we may declare the glory of God. That we might proclaim God's glory to each other and to the world. To proclaim His glory and to proclaim the glory of the Gospel. And he says, finally, just remember this. Yes, you're suffering. Yes, you're going through hard times. But let me just remind you finally who you are. And I think we all need to be reminded of this occasionally. Once you were not a people. You were aliens to God. We were rebellious people. We were, as Paul says in, two, in, in Ephesians 2, we were spiritually dead. But now, because of this cornerstone, because of the Lord Jesus, now you are the people of God. Isn't that amazing? We don't encourage ourselves with this language anymore, do we not? Of who we are as Christians. We are the people of God. Once you hadn't received mercy. But now through this cornerstone. Through the Lord Jesus. Through his death. Through his resurrection. You have now received mercy. Once you were not this chosen nation. But, but now we are through the glory of the gospel. Now. We have experienced this mercy. We are living stones whom can draw near to God with total access. And He is building us into this amazing spiritual temple, getting us ready for the day when Jesus comes back and gathers His people together. And God says, I'm going to dwell in my temple again. He will dwell with us. Isn't it a wonderful picture of who we are in Christ? A royal priesthood. A chosen people. A holy nation. God's special possession. Friends, this is how God views us. And it's amazing when we think of what we're really like. And our faults and our flaws and our weaknesses. It's amazing to think this is how God, because of what he has done for us in the Lord Jesus, this is how he views us. Do you not think that would have been significant to a church suffering, struggling? Don't you think that's as equally as significant today for, for many Christians who struggle for identity? They search for identity, they, they search for meaning. For Christians who feel of very little worth or value. This is how God views you. You are so precious to him. So shouldn't we view each other a little bit more that way? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we are this spiritual temple that you are building and that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he is the significant piece and it's because of him that we are being built into this temple. Thank you that we can draw near to you. Thank you that you are building us, growing us into this temple. And thank you for the wonderful privilege 
of these names that you have given as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your special possession. Thank you, Lord, that because of your mercy, you view us this way. What a privilege and honour to be in your family. What a privilege and honour to serve the Lord Jesus as King. Lord, please help us to be better at it. Help us to get it right more often than we get it wrong. And help us, as one people, to declare your glory to this world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.